what we do here is go back, 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 back. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome in to episode number two of the Two and a Half Marks podcast. I'm David Statman, along with my good friends Angelo Inglisa and Jake Long, as we review random shows completely at random on the WWE Network. Last week, it was King of the Ring 2000, and this week, it's going to be an absolute classic. We're talking early 90s WCW, pre-NWO. WCW Fall Brawl 1994. We got Dusty Rhodes. We got a classic War Games match. And boys, how do you feel? We made it to episode two. We thought we might not be able to record today because the power went out in Angelo's neighborhood, but we made it to episode two. So it's really funny. Uh, my dad actually just got uh, the electricity in the house reworked. So there's a not, not 0% chance that it was his fault that the power went out in the neighborhood. So. <laughs> We were giving him, me and my brother were giving him hell for that, but it's good to be back on the air. Uh, surprisingly not canceled. We were not served a season desist from the WWE, so that's always a good thing. What about you, Jake? How yeah. you feeling? I'm excited, man. I, I feel like I did last week and like, you know, again, I knew coming up that this was, the, that this was a war games, but like there were some people on this card. There were yeah. And this is a podcast. As we know, it's, all about entirely 100% about remembering guys. That is the thing that we love to do the most more than anything else. We just love. And is this your first out of like WWF from the same time frame? And I didn't realize the WCW presentation, just kind of way the stage and stuff and the lighting and stuff is set up. It looks, I think, a lot more modern in some ways than WWF did at that same time period. So I think that's really kind of interesting to see, especially like when you, when you compare the two. And at the time, WWF was still very much entrenched as the leader of wrestling in the United States and would be for another couple of years until, you know, and the NWO changes everything. 83 weeks. 83 weeks. And <laughs> they're a podcast. We're a podcast. And I think we might as well just kind of jump right into this one. 1994, it's September 18th, 1994. We're just a few months away from the O.J. Simpson trial starting. And we are in Roanoke, Virginia at the Roanoke Civic Center, Flair Country. 6,500 people in attendance to see a classic War Games match in the main event. Team Rhodes, Dusty, his son Dustin, and the Nasty Boys against the stud stable Terry Funk. Arn Anderson, Bunkhouse Buck, and their manager, Colonel Robert Parker, who's also going to be wrestling in this match. We start off with a singles match for the WCW World Television Championship. We have Johnny B. Bad, who would later be known as Mark Miro in the WWF in the mid to late 90s, taking on another future WWF star, Lord Steven Regal, the champion, later known, of course, as William Regal, they go one-on-one -on -one in this match. And I thought this was actually, a, I thought this was a pretty good match, to be honest, a pretty good pretty good start out, good kind of technical work in this match. You've got Johnny B. Bad pretending to be Little Richard because that was his whole gimmick. <laughs> and then you have Lord Steven Regal shows up wearing a, like a powdered wig. And I thought this was, was, was pretty good action, honestly. 
I loved Redcoat Regal. That was uh, I could not ask for a better intro for WCW than this. You see Johnny B. Bad with coming out dressed up like a gumball machine, according to Brian the Brain Heenan, uh, versus Re- and the mullet. Oh my lord, Jake, your mullet was so much better than Johnny B. Bad's. <laughs> uh, oh no, not even close. And then you have Regal come out wearing wearing a red coat wearing the powdered wig, just trotting to the ring. He's got his hand behind his back. I loved Re- uh, Steven Regal in this match, and it wasn't a one-on-one match. It was one-on-two. Sir William was there helping out. It yes. my, my favorite spot was when Regal's reaching for the cane and the ref uh, just kicks it out of the way so the manager can't hold on to it anymore. Regal falls backwards into a pin, pin attempt. But, yeah, I agree, David. This was just a lot of fun to watch. It wasn't full of spots, but the wrestling going on in the ring, the story that they were telling, it was very fulfilling. Yeah, I, I agree with everything that Ann said. Um, something that I noticed, and something I'm going to bring up about a particular uh, guy who some people would consider Stone Cold later, um, I just loved, I loved the theory, like the logic in wrestling to just completely ignore previous characters, okay? So, like... Like, Johnny B. Bad would eventually just go by Mark Merrow in the WWE. Steven Regal would just go by William Regal. Like, I just wonder, like, in kayfabe, like, are these people, like, legally changing their identities? Like, are they going to the DMV and, like, getting new license, like, uh, driver's license and stuff like that? Or are we acting like that doesn't happen? Because I think that needs answers. But, yeah, I agree. The wrestling was phenomenal. Johnny B. Bad was, like, throwing himself all around and, uh, like doing stuff that somebody his size shouldn't be doing, especially in '94, um, and the crowd loved it. The crowd was yeah. all about it. That hurricane yeah. hit was impressive. I was <clears throat> very stunned to see someone that was labeled as a boxer um, show that kind of athleticism to do a hurricane rod on a guy that's pushing like six four, six five. Yeah, I, 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 a I hoss. Think, yeah, I thought Regal was the star of the man. I, I, Regal is like always been one of my favorites. I think he's great. He, I've, I've always been a fan of that, that style, like the British style of wrestling. And he was just so great at like, he walks, he's like this evil, like, like colonial, like era red coat. And his, his manservant, William, who looked like Elton John, he just carried himself so arrogantly. And like his style of wrestling just fit his persona perfectly. I thought he was just like, he would like, you just imagine like, in like a, like a Three Stooges cartoon or like Three Stooges sketch where you have like like this upset rich guy who then gets his comeuppance or something like that and it's just like and he's making all these just ridiculous faces and it's just perfect like he's just absolutely perfect for the role that he's playing and he's a great wrestler even the way he grabs the ropes is just so much there's so much charisma going into that because he's just he's not grabbing it with his hand he's hooking his arm around it he's not touching the rope with any part of his body he's just hooked around it dignified it's slightly behind his back and he's looking at the ref he's like get him off me get him off me I want to get him off (laughs) yeah uh, and so we have, like, I, like I think we both agree this was a pretty good, good, solid technical match. Nothing really crazy, but like a lot of just kind of textbook spots and textbook stuff. But it was really good and well executed. And then you have Johnny B. Bad pinning him with a backslide after about eleven minutes to win the title. Johnny B. Bad becomes the WCW Television World Television Champion in what I think we both agree pretty pretty solid match. One thing that I, like, at least how I judge matches um, is, like, do I, can I tell who's going to win, and do they subvert, or how do they subvert my expectations in that? 
And there were legit like three times, and I was like, oh, okay, I guess that's the end of the match. And it was like, oh, no. And then they would, you know, roll up again. I was like, oh, okay, that's where it ends. No. And then like the four times, it was finally the end of the match. And as I was, I was pretty well impressed by that. I was just impressed. They don't have a lot of spots in that match. You have the Hurricane Rana uh, by Johnny B. Bad. You have a few, uh, I think Regal reaching out for the Canes, a little bit of a spot, but they don't yeah. have a lot of big, oh my gosh, moments in this match. Right. It's just a very sound match. I was surprised at how much I enjoyed something that you could say that action isn't there. It's a very different style that we don't really see much of today. But I, I again, this was a good match. I can't say enough good things about it. Yeah, I agreed. Very, very good stuff. Then go, you talked about, uh, Jake, you talked about how they kind of interwove the Flair Hogan storyline. They go to a, a video package after this showing Hogan getting attacked at the Clash of Champions, which kind of, set, kind of sets up what is going on in this, in this storyline between Flair and Hogan by a masked man, a mysterious masked man who we, we may in fact see later in the show. Possibly. We'll see. I don't want to spoil anything. <laughs> Angelo mentioned how the, the, the Johnny B. Bad, Lord Steven Regal match, not a ton of kind of big moves or big bumps. We then go to a match that was basically six minutes, and, and the real substance of it was a couple of big bumps by one particular guy. A loser leaves WCW match between Cactus Jack, the legend, Mick Foley, against Kevin Sullivan, an old friend of my dad's, interestingly enough. Really? My dad, my dad used to I go to Kevin... That. My dad used to go to Kevin Sullivan's gym in the Florida Keys, and the two of them were friends. Oh my god. Wow. Yeah. Um, loser leaves WCW, Kevin Sullivan, Cactus Jack. Everyone loves Cactus Jack. Fans go crazy for him. The man has always been a man of the people. He always gets a reaction wherever he's been. And this entire match was basically just Mick taking bumps on the concrete repeatedly. It kind of seemed like he was trying to get Sullivan over as a like a big heel. Uh, that was the vibe I got throughout the match. I liked uh, Jack throughout this match. It's going to be hard to keep calling him Jack Cactus Jack. I know him so well as Mick Foley. I'm probably just going to call him Mick the whole time, so um, you can do it. So... But Mick's taking these dives. He's up on the top rope or second rope, and he gets dumped right onto the concrete back first. I mean, the way he just takes these bumps, it's something to behold. I wasn't really big on Sullivan in this match. He kind of made me tune out a little bit. But the way Jack sells is just, he's impressive. You really appreciate the young Foley. Uh, the one match I remember watching him in was the... Uh, WrestleMania 24 versus Edge, where he gets speared through the flaming table. And yeah. man, I, I Foley's another guy I really like watching in this match. Yeah, uh, but not and, so much Sullivan. And by well, by this point, Kevin Sullivan has been wrestling for 25 years. He was already in his mid 40s. So, and he was, you know, kind of a a squat type. He's only of five thick, nine. Yeah, squat kind of thick bruiser type wrestler. I don't think he really really aged that well in the ring and i think i think the whole the whole idea was like the only way that they could really kind of make this match somewhat memorable is if mick took a bunch of crazy bumps and that's what mick is kind of famous for is is taking crazy bumps so he's like all right well just throw me on the concrete a bunch of times did you guys listen to tony shivani during this match like people will talk about vince and kind of like how he's kind of egotistical and stuff 
And I don't know who was feeding Shivani these lines and whether he was doing them himself, but like he was dumping on uh, Cactus Jack for because I mean, like obviously at this point everybody knew that he was he was going to be the one leaving. Um, but like Shivani was just like, could you imagine wanting to leave WCW, the premier wrestling promotion in the world? Like I, I just thought it was incredible that he was just so shamelessly being like, screw you, Cactus Jack, for wanting to leave. Yeah. Um, and, and like wove that in. Um, but I honestly, I'm one of my favorite spots in wrestling is the concrete spot because I just, there's no way I can imagine taking that bump that doesn't hurt. Yeah. And I actually so, take bumps and I don't want to take bumps on concrete. <laughs> like I don't want to do it. That sucks. I want to see you take the, uh, the Chancellor Gargano spot where he just power bombs him onto the concrete. I want to yeah. see you take oh, that spot. I'm going to avoid that as much as I can. But yeah, I mean, by this point, Cactus Jack had pretty much already left WCW. This was like his one last appearance. He had already been working outside of WCW for a few months. So I think most people who, I guess, were quote unquote in the know probably knew that he was leaving anyway. So this is kind of just, well, it's, you know, it's a classic, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, kick him, kick him in the butt on the way out the door and, you know, he goes out on his back as as people tend to do in wrestling. Um, another another kind of thing about this match, though, real quick. Um, Kevin Sullivan coming out with his brother Dave, also a wrestler around this time, um, who shows up. He's wearing a red bathrobe, and the whole thing about him was that he was dyslexic, but he pronounced his own name backwards, which is just a like an incredible like. It's not only extremely offensive to people who have dyslexia, it's just like a fundamental misunderstanding of how dyslexia works <laughs> as a condition. He had big Yano energy. Very big Yano energy. Uh, but I will say this, uh, I didn't know that this was the point where Foley was, I kind of figured Foley was headed towards uh, WWF once I saw the, the result. Uh, I will say both both men did a good job selling the result at the end of the match. Like, Sullivan... Yeah catch uh chortling to himself and laughing at the fact that jack's out of wcw uh foley for you know looking really distraught after taking that pin uh even on a roll-up no less just a very cowardly kind of win a cowardly way to go out so yeah yeah i mean he didn't he didn't go straight to wwf i mean he went and worked in ecw and then he was working in japan for the over the next two years and then he went to WWF and became Mankind around 96. But yeah, in this match, Mick, I counted, he takes four bumps, four separate bumps on the cement. He gets the thrown from the top rope down onto the cement, which is the biggest one, gets right back up, and then immediately gets body slammed on the cement again. And then later takes a backdrop and then a clothesline directly again on the cement where they had ripped the, uh, the floor pads up off the floor. So he takes four bumps onto the cement. Um, one thing I, I did notice that I thought was kind of cool was this match happened a couple months after he had the famous match with Vader where he got his ear ripped off and it's mentioned, they mentioned it several times and they kind of work it into the way they're telling the story of the match, but how, yeah, he had his ear ripped off and, you know, certain things are hitting him harder and certain things are affecting him more. It's a nice way of kind of how like the commentary helped kind of tell a story in the match by using stuff that had already happened. 
Right, and not just constantly yelling about what a maneuver that was. Yeah, <laughs> as, as was happening in another promotion around the same time. I will say, um, I really like the team of Shivoni and uh, uh, Bobby the Brain. I thought they were really good to listen to. They are fun. I, I enjoyed them throughout the entire match. You hear Bobby the Brain, uh, Bobby say a lot of dumb things. He also has a spot in the tag team match coming up that I kind of really enjoyed for the little story it told. Uh, yeah, I, I, I like both those guys on commentary. Yeah. I think Bobby the Brain Heenan is most people or a lot of people would consider him maybe, you know, the greatest heel commentator of all time. And then you've got Tony Schiavone, young Schiavone, great mullet. I mean, he is in the prime of his life at this point. And Schiavone is great. I've always been a huge Schiavone guy. But so we have uh, Mick tries to, to knee Kevin and then Kevin moves out of the way. He hits Dave instead. Kevin comes back, rolls him up one, two, three. Kevin Sullivan, the winner, and Cactus Jack is out of WCW, and we never hear from Mick Foley again. Mm, RIP. RIP. We then go on next match. I think this is the one match that if you didn't really know anything and you just look, as I'm sure Angelo, I'm sure Angelo didn't really know anything of the history and stuff surrounding like the circumstances of this match. And you just look at, okay, okay, so we're gonna do we're gonna do Fall Brawl 1994. What's the list of matches? What what am I gonna see? And then you see third match on the card: Jim Duggan defeats Steve Austin in 35 seconds. You'd be like, what the hell is going on here? What is this? My God! Hey, before like, the, before that though, we did get a little bit of a promo from uh, uh the Stud Stable. The Stud Not Stable, that. yeah. Um, I and Arn, I loved Arn in that segment. I yes. really enjoyed the, uh, the Arn promo. The only introduction I had to Arn was the AEW spots currently, where he's a manager for Cody. And Daniel Tosh constantly talking crap on him on every Tosh.0. I'm coming for you, Arn. Uh, and let me just say, Arn did not disappoint. You, to get us to quit, you're going to have to kill us. Yeah. Why did he said that promo? He, I thought he was electric. The other promos from the set stable, I mean, hit and miss for me. Uh, but Arn kind of really was, I, I was very impressed by what he had to say and like how he said it, how he delivered. Yeah. He, I thought Arn was great in that little segment. I'm sorry to take no, away from stunning Steve. No, but, I, I yeah. had, I had a note on that. I, I moved past it, but yeah, I mean, Arn, I think, you know, he's best remembered as a member of the four horsemen it was always overshadowed as a promo by flair because it's flair. He's arguably the greatest <laughs> promo ever, but I thought Arn was always, a, like, always could cut a great, really intense and just believable promo. I thought that was something Arn was always really, really good at. But moving past that, again, Hacksaw Jim Duggan defeats Stunning Steve Austin in 35 seconds. It's, it's kind of crazy just to like absorb that, that result alone, that that happened, and then three years later, Stone Cold Steve Austin, three, four years later, is like the biggest star in wrestling. And like you just kind of see... It's one of those, like, when you think about, like, when people would talk about the WrestleMania, I think it was WrestleMania match where Ultimate Warrior squashed Triple H in, like, 30 seconds. Where you have guys who were, like, it's like a funny result of a guy who ended up becoming this enormous superstar, and then you think about where he was a few years before. Like, I'm get like, Triple H, a couple of years before being the big, one of the biggest stars in wrestling, was in the hog slop match with Henry O. Godwin. 
And just a couple years after getting squashed by Jim Duggan in two moves, Stone Cold Steve Austin was on his way to becoming one of the biggest stars in history. And it's just, it's kind of crazy to see, because this was literally like, it was two moves. It was literally a backdrop, and then a body splash, and then one, two, three, and it's over. And he's flailing the entire time. Yeah. Um, Obviously, yeah. This a little is, more... Sorry, this is another case of, I mean, last time on King of the Ring, we had uh, Angle, who we said got better in wrestling as he went bald. Stunning Steve Austin has great hair in this uh, pay-per-view, and he gets so over as he's bald. So, you know. Yeah. Fun little parallels. The thing, it's it's weird to think about for me, though, from going from studying Steve Austin to Stone Cold. It's similar because based on, like, what the gimmick was, it's pretty much like if you have The Miz right now shave his head and go fr- to a very backwoods badass. Like, he wears camo to the ring, and he's drinking beers the entire time. It, it, it's, it's kind of weird to see a guy go from one, th- do a complete 180 like that with the character. Um. And I, that's what I, David actually already ruined my jokes because I have written here. I really hope that this doesn't affect Austin's career. So thanks for ruining that, David. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like, honestly, so David had mentioned this in our last podcast. I was big into wrestling um, in like the 2010, 2011 time. And at one point, uh, Hacksaw came back for like a guest appearance or something. And I was like, oh, man, that guy is so awesome. I love him. And then to like go back and watch this and see like how he was treated like as a guy that could come and just win a match in two moves like that just that made like thirteen year old Jacob very happy to see. Yeah, and it's funny. I mean, Andrew, you mentioned it how the the, the character transformation. Stone Cold Steve Austin at the time, stunning Steve Austin. He comes in. He had been a member of the Hollywood Blondes tag team with with Brian Pillman, who were a great tag team at their time. And he comes out, he's got the blonde hair, kind of a, you know, hairline status, not great at that point. It's, it's, you know, it, it got worse, but it wasn't great at that time. He comes out, he's billed as being from Hollywood, California, but then he comes out and he gets the microphone in his hands and he's still from Texas. And so when he talks, (laughs) he sounds like Stone Cold Steve Austin when he's stunning Steve Austin from Hollywood, California. And he's like, I'm not going to do a match right now. (laughs) Like, this severe, like, dissonance in your head. It's terrible. It really is. But at the same time, you just got to – because he made it work. He got that over. Like, I was – I. I liked the character. He was very just. He was he was talking all that crap to uh, Ricky Steamboat, uh, saying that, whatever. I'm the champ now. Shut up. I'm not wrestling right now. You're not gonna have me book a match. And then by the time that Duggan he sees Duggan come out, he's freaking out. He's telling uh, Bachwinkle that he's not wrestling this match, and he's losing his mind. The refs trying to drag him in. Uh, Bachwinkle's trying to drag him in, and then he turns around and gets backdropped by Duggan. It was just. If I had watched the build-up for that match, like watching the rivalry between Steamboat and uh, Stunning Steve, you probably appreciate that a lot more as the fact of this heel gets this quick come up it's in his title shot. Yeah. I mean, it, you mentioned kind of the, the circumstances moving into this match. Ricky Steamboat is coming in as the United States champion, but it was just, I think, the month before at Clash of Champions, him and Austin had a match where... Steamboat suffered actually a really severe back injury and they had this rematch scheduled. Steamboat can't wrestle 
actually was a career-ending back injury. That match against Austin at Clash of Champions was his last match for about 15 years when he made a little comeback at WrestleMania 25. He had a match, but it was his first match in 15 years since that match at Clash of Champions. So he comes out, and he gives up the title. They, They award the title to stunning Steve Austin, who is going to be his challenger, and then... WCW president Nick Bockwinkle, of course, himself uh, a legend of the 70s and the 80s, look, is by this point, even he just passed away, I think, a year or two ago. Um, he says, you're defending the title against somebody. And then Hacksaw Jim Duggan comes out. And Hacksaw got a pretty big reaction. And then, you know, Austin's, you know, for about the first 20 seconds, they ring the bell. He's, about, he's arguing with the ref for about the first 20, 25 seconds. And then, Ange, as you mentioned, backdrop, body splash, pin, and your new United States champion is Hacksaw Jim Duggan over Steve Austin in 35 seconds, which, again, remains one of the weird, like, if you're just kind of looking through shows and looking at just match results from from pay-per-views, one of just kind of the standout weird results that has happened on, on a show over the last, you know, 20, 30 years. We then move on afterwards, immediately afterward, one guy who is, you know, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, obviously, you know, he was the, the American flag, Mr. Patriot. We then move on from him immediately to the tag team of Stars and Stripes with a guy literally named the Patriot and a young Marcus Alexander Bagwell, later to be known as Buff Bagwell, taking on, challenging the tag team champions Pretty wonderful, pretty Paul Roma and Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, who are just a couple cool dudes in shades wearing robes and then taking other pe- taking each other's robes off and just looking all cool. <laughs> yeah, um, I, the one thing with uh, Pretty Wonderful I enjoyed, they, it seemed like they were, the, they, they were definitely the heel team, but it seemed like the Roanoke crowd liked them more than Stars and Stripes. I, I thought that there, you saw a couple of guys later on chanting pretty wonderful. I just enjoyed the way they carried themselves this entire match. It, uh, one of my favorite spots in this entire uh, pay-per-view is you see uh, Bobby point out his cooler of drinks to Paul Orndorff, and then he just slams Bagwell's head into the cooler and then dumps the cooler out onto Bagwell. I mean, it's not a comedy match, but it's just one of those things back then it treats the fight like a legitimate fight. You're using anything you can use. Great heel tag team tactics distracting the referee throughout this one. I really enjoyed Pretty Wonderful's work throughout this match. Like on the as I was looking through the um the card, I saw the Patriot and I was like, huh, I didn't think Hulk Hogan was on this. Because I thought about Mr. America. Yeah. <laughs> whenever whenever Hogan like was confusing everybody by being the guy in uh, red, white, and blue, I was like, no, that can't be it. Then I looked him up and found out it wasn't. And that was the same yeah. time that I uh, that I was looking at uh, Mr. Buff Bagwell, one of my favorite underrated people of all time. Um, and I, I really didn't know a whole lot about Pretty Wonderful, but I agree with Ange. Their heel work was phenomenal. And, and the, the crowd loved Buff and, and the Patriots. Yeah. And the one, one thing that I really noticed, too, was uh, this match here, I really noticed how good of a heel Bobby Heenan was because he was healing it up this entire match. Just, like, like almost trash-talking America with, like, if you want to be a heel, like, in, like, the early 90s, or really in all the 90s, just trash-talk America, you're a heel. Boom. That, 
That's that's I mean that's that's really been a staple of being a heel in America up and through like just a few years ago. Yeah, that's true. Like, I mean, you had Rusev riding out on the tank representing America <laughs> against John Cena at, Wrestle, at WrestleMania just like a few years ago. Like well, yeah, like, like four years ago. But <laughs> oh yeah, this match too, we get that fan that gets thrown out, and they they're they have the camera out on him. He's being belligerent. They're, they have security tech taking him out. I'm sorry, I should mention this before. I, I I just have to ask: Is that a fan, or is that just a plant they have for the show? I legitimately no couldn't tell because it was. I will buy either Wait, was one. That, is that whenever they were talking about like that guy's been at every show recently? Yes. Yeah, I I feel like that has to be a plant, but I don't know because that that was weird. Yeah. I feel like when they call when they call attention to something like that, you would figure that it's it, got to be it's got to be exactly. work sometime. I don't I don't know. I, I might have to look that up because I I might have to like see what that was. But that that would be kind of your instinct. Just a real quick personal story that that you just made me think of with that. So uh, David and I went to uh, the G one Supercard in twenty. It would have been that last year, right? Twenty nineteen. Last, last April, yeah. Whenever they ran uh, Madison Square Garden and. One of the most random things ever was that Enzo and Cass had like a shoot run in on this show, and like they just got the hell beaten out of them by like, uh, oh my gosh, it was Bully Ray. Like Bully, Bully Ray. Ray just went to town on these guys. Like the cameras didn't capture it, and it was never talked about again. Yeah, it was one it was of the weirdest things. I remember it was news for about a day, and then you stopped yeah. hearing about it. Well, it was a big deal. I think it was a big deal because like they didn't tell the New Japan people about it at all. So they were doing like their own angle where like Toru Yano came out and stole the belts and like they were setting up their own thing. And then, but meanwhile, they've got like Enzo and Cass going ape shit on the sideline. And you've got like the Briscoe brothers and you've got uh, Bully Ray beating them up. And then like nobody saw the other thing. Nobody saw like the angle <laughs> that New Japan was doing because Enzo and Cass, and then like they decided not actually to bring him in. And then that never, ha- like they never were seen again. It was like the most bizarre thing anyone is like. It was it's the most bizarre thing I've ever seen, like actually in person in my life. But yeah, we have the Patriot and uh, young Marcus Alexander Bagwell. The Patriot being uh, Del Wilkes, who was fun fact all American offensive lineman at University of South Carolina in the eighties. Didn't make the NFL. Went into wrestling. Was actually a really big star in one point in Japan. And had a run in WCW and had a run in WWF in like 97, 98. And then you've got young Marcus Alexander Bagwell, as we referred to, future, futurely known as Buff Bagwell, who is, when I think about like 1999, 2000 WCW, I think of Buff Bagwell. This is before he got like just gassed the hell up and got like, it became Buff Bagwell. He's wearing the top hat and was super cool. This is young, fresh faced. Mr. Bagwell, who I thought looked pretty good in this match. I mean, you know, he was a good athlete. And Paul Roma, I, I remember Paul Roma is just like he's a guy. Like, I remember Paul, like, Paul Roma is just sort of a bland white dude. But could get some air. That guy, could, he was an athlete. I was saying, he got some I, air in this I actually match. have that written down. Uh, the athleticism Roma shows in this match, which, whether it's his dropkick, just hopping up to the top rope casually, his elbow drop, the hang time he gets there. I liked uh, the Roma spot. I loved Roma in this entire match. The spots he has, uh, he's just he the way he works around the ring. He's very 
I almost he's like a stuntman almost. He does everything right. You don't see him mess up. He knows where everything is. He knows where to put himself and position himself so he can put these spots up. He was great at selling that uh, full Nelson slam from the Patriot too at the end of the match. It wasn't the cleanest looking move, but I mean he's doing a great job. You know, contorting his body to go with what the Patriots doing. I love Romo was probably my favorite guy in this match. Um, I I just enjoyed his spots. I enjoyed his. Uh, talking the Paula him reacting to the Paula chance was really funny too. just get him getting really psyched up and angry about it. Uh, but overall, I, I wasn't expecting much of this tag team match when I saw it listed on this, uh, the Wikipedia. I'm just like, yeah, hey, I don't know either of these guys. I kind of know who Paul Ordoff is. I've never heard of stars and stripes. And I like this match. This was another good match. A lot of these matches were really good on this card. Yeah. And we have hey, my favorite spot of the match. Uh, Paul Orndorff doing a kind of a, a predecessor to the people's elbow where he just kind of goes crazy and then humps the air for like 20 seconds and then drops an elbow. <laughs> Mr. Wonderful invented the people's elbow. The Rock, your thoughts? No response. Jake, what was that? I said humping the air gives the elbow more power. It's just, that's canon. That's, that's just legit. That's just look at Otis. That's just, that's just the science of how. That's just the science of torque. You need to put enough torque on your elbow for it to work. We then go backstage, or so we have the spot where the referee doesn't see that. Like, uh, uh, he misses Bagwell is getting Bagwell's getting beaten on the whole match. Just as he's about to get to the corner and tag in the Patriot, the referee turns his back, doesn't see the tag. Patriot comes in and kills everybody, hits the full Nelson slam on Roma, but the referee doesn't count the pin because he's not the legal man. On the outside, Mr. Wonderful pile drives Bagwell, rolls him back in the ring. Roma rolls over and pins him, and still tag team champions. Pretty wonderful, Paul Roma and Paul Orndorff. We then go backstage. We get our first look at Team Rhodes for the upcoming War Games match. They have a promo, the whole group of them, the Nasty Boys, the natural Dustin Rhodes, and, of course, the great Dusty Rhodes. This is, I mean, we see Dustin Rhodes now as, as the old vet every week on AEW. This is very young Dustin Rhodes. I think he's in his early to mid-20s. He's actually our age, he's, 24. Chin is enormous. <laughs> the size of a car. He looks great. Dustin looks great. Dusty cuts a great promo. I know, Jake, you wanted mm -hmm. to just talk about how much you love Dusty. A, a, a couple things from the Dusty promo I thought were interesting. He name drops his son, Cody, who, of course, would never be heard from again. And he <laughs> shouts out Woody Harrelson for some reason, which I also appreciate because I think Woody Harrelson makes some pretty good movies. <laughs> the nasty voice too I don't know if you what? had that down in your notes or not um, what was it where Dusty recruits the nasty voice they, they showed that up on the screen too where he like goes to the bar I'm going to go talk about a thing I think it's a little bit later I think it's a little bit later it is later but I'm going to go ahead and talk about it because I love Dusty that much uh, so like Dusty cutting a promo like I was, I was just kind of chilling and like I was ready to fight. I was ready to go to town for Dusty Rhodes. And one of my, one of like the greatest part was he just goes to the bar to find the nasty boys. And he's like, I need some boys that are nasty. And they're like, oh, well, 
we can do that. And he's like, I need boys that are going to rip and tear. And I was like, we all rip and tear. I was just, I was ready to fight for him. <laughs> and he says, are you nasty enough? I'm like, is this nasty enough? And they start throwing people around the bar. Yeah, oh, man. He said, you're, you're not nasty enough. And then they're just like, let's just start a bar fight. <laughs> <laughs> not, but this I, is- I ate a bowl of nails for breakfast <laughs> without any milk. Uh, this is my first real true introduction to Dusty. I obviously I know who he was. I've seen him a few times on WWE programming, but it's the that was the old seventy year old version of Dusty Rhodes, which loses a little bit of luster. Here he's about fifty. He's cutting this promo. It's I, I honestly we compare we talked about Jericho last time with Eddie. This is kind of like his version of being Jericho and getting people over. He's working to get his son over, the nasty boys over. Um, but the way he's just the way he just speaks, he doesn't waste his time. He doesn't waste his words. That draw, that classic dusty yeah. draw, it was music to my ears. My dad has been a longtime supporter of Dusty Rhodes and always talks about Dusty Rhodes. He's the first guy. Whenever I'm talking wrestling with my dad, he always mentions Dusty Rhodes. And you know, Dusty did not disappoint here. I I was a big yeah. fan of Dusty throughout this entire pay per view. Um, I need that nasty dream shirt though. That was a A one shirt. <laughs> I had that in my notes too because I wanted the nasty dream shirt. But like, I mean, Angela, like it's it's like you said, like your dad who was a wrestling fan back then, you know, mentions Dusty Rhodes. My dad who was not a wrestling fan but was a re- watched wrestling back then and was a wrestling fan back then. Like the first guy he always mentions is Dusty Rhodes. It's just something about like, everybody loved Dusty Rhodes. Like there's just something about Dusty Rhodes that even now, like you listen to his promos and he makes you want to fight somebody for him. It makes you want to throw your be the first person up against the wall for Dusty. Even with that innocent list too, like it doesn't. It's not a menacing voice, but he just gets you riled up. Part of like the. Like, it makes him feel real, and, like, what he's saying is legit. Like, like he's not making it up, because he's not, like, hiding his voice. He's being very, uh, very sincere with it, and I think that, that really, uh, really adds to it for him. Yeah, that was, I mean, I think that was the reason why Dusty was so successful, is, like I said, he never came off as, like, he was trying to be anything else except himself. Yeah, he's just not... He was just Dusty Rhodes, and he was full force, unapologetically Dusty Rhodes, and that is why he just came off so sincere, and why people loved him so much. And then he retired with WCW, never went to WWE, and everybody was happy. Yeah, exactly. It was Mm -hmm. awesome. It was perfect. (laughs) But then we move on from that. This is like an interesting type of match that really only (laughs) existed at this point because they had started to progress to a point in like wrestling storytelling where they were going to have multiple people kind of fighting over the belt at the same time, but they hadn't invented the concept of like the triple threat match. The first triple threat match, at least in WWE, wasn't until 1997. Owen Hart, Goldust, and Triple H had an Intercontinental Championship triple threat match on an episode of Raw. This is three years before. They have... Vader, the Guardian Angel, better known as the Big Boss Man, and Sting. You've got three guys who are all trying to fight it out to be the number one contender for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. And instead of thinking, hey, how about we just put all three guys in the ring at the same time and have them fight it out and have a winner, they do this 
triangle elimination match where they all flip coins at the same time. And whoever gets the different coin or something, they get to have a buy. And then these two guys have to wrestle. And then he gets to wrestle after. And then there's a bunch of, there's time limits. And then there's, there's overtimes for some reason. I really don't understand why they needed to do that. But this is how they decided to handle having three people going after the same thing. They turned it into like four separate matches somehow. Instead of just saying, hey, let's have them all wrestle each other. I actually don't hate this concept though. I was I found it a little bit enjoy even if it was cheesy as heck. Like well, the first thing I think of when I heard, oh, they're gonna flip a coin to decide who's gets the buy. First thought is one, is it heads, is it tails, who gets the buy? Two, what happens if they all flip the same thing? What happens well, if they the just flip about it again? That. Here's the thing about that. <laughs> Obviously they had decided beforehand, you know, they're gonna have Vader versus Guardian Angel first, and then Vader versus Sting, because you got the plan out there. And obviously, you know, there's another instance later in the show where you have a coin flip to determine the order of who comes in during war games. And obviously, you have to have that planned out beforehand, just the structure of the match. So, you notice, they never actually show you the coin. They just flip it, and then they pick it up. All right, it's heads. And then they, okay, well, you guys are going first. That's just what they do. But, like, this is, this is, you know... It's like they were just doing this like in 1994. This is how they decided to settle these things. Because this is just a few months after WrestleMania 10 when they had the Royal Rumble tie between Lex Luger and Bret Hart. And so they have two challengers for the WWF title at WrestleMania. And instead of saying, hey, let's just have them do a three-way, they do a coin toss on Raw like a week or two before the show. And then it ended up being, well, uh, I think it was Brett uh, Brett won, so Luger has to fight him, or I can't remember who won, but it ended up being Luger had to fight Yokozuna first, and then Brett fought fought the winner of the match later in the show, but he had to wrestle Owen Hart first, so they they, they each had one match going into, and it's just like, it's way overcomplicated. Just let them all fight each other. I don't know how they had not like. I I don't know if they had like they had come up with the triple threat match idea and just thought it was stupid, or they had just not conceived of it before. Three people in the ring at the same thought, time, preposterous. I just thought this was a little bit overcomplicated, especially once you got to the second, the 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 Vader Sting part of it, the second kind of match within the match, and then you have all the they have the time limits and the overtimes for. And there's like really, I, I don't see any reason why they need to have that. I don't know. It was a little weird. I'm a I'm a big kayfabe guy, and like looking at like how things make sense in kayfabe. And I was thinking about it. I was like, all right, so they have a so we get to you know the second half, Sting and Vader. There's a 15 minute time limit to to decide a winner. Okay, you got to pin them one, two, three. Doesn't happen. So then they give them five more minutes to do the same thing. Yeah. Like, in kayfabe, where does that make sense? Why don't you go straight to the sudden death at that point? It's not like yeah. basketball where, like, you're scoring points or even, you know, uh, like like Roman or Greco-Roman wrestling where you're wrestling for points. Like, it's, I don't know. It case, I don't think kayfabe guys, so that's how I think about it. <laughs> so the one good thing about the, I know we're not talking about it, the Guardian Angel versus Vader part. I mean, it's just two big guys going at it. That, oh, yeah. That was really it was so much fun to watch those two guys just it's slow down. It's wrestling. 
big I actually have just two absolute hosses. It's um, two hoss wrestlers. The one thing I've started to learn about myself in the past two months is that I'm an absolute sting mark. Uh, oh yeah, I, I started, is great. I started watching like the the clips of Sting in WWE that while that brief time was going on, and I was just in, it was I was amazed. He was just the facial expressions, uh, how he moves about the ring, um, the way he cuts the promos. I, I was very wowed. And this version of Sting, it's not the darky dark edgy version. It's just the kind of like the Ultimate Warrior a little bit, kind of get a little bit vibe there, just with the like, how much color he has. The fact One that of great... the fact that he throws around Vader in that second match, there's like he's suplexing Vader, he's body slamming Vader. At one point, he catches Vader off the second rope and does a power slam. The, Vader's down by about 200 pounds, and he's just doing well, all this thing. It's it's it so takes, it's fun to watch. It takes two to tango on that too, and I I have always believed that Vader is one of, if not the greatest big man in the history of wrestling. I don't know if you have ever seen a guy that size because he is a dude who is maybe almost a legit four hundo, mm-hmm. and a guy like that who works that hard and takes that many bumps and just can carry a match like that. The moonsault. They, they they do not make them like Vader. I can't even say that they they like you know people say oh they don't make them like that anymore. They never made them like that. It was literally only <laughs> Vader. The moonsault. I lost my mind at the moonsault. I, I just lost my mind at the moonsault. That's all. I'm still amazed at that moonsault. <laughs> that was like his thing. Too. Like, like he did that. Like all. I don't want to say all the time, but like, like Vader did the moonsault. It wasn't like he pulled it out one time either. Yeah, it was just Vader did the moonsault. Jake, I feel like we've been interrupting you for like a half hour on this one. <laughs> no, no. I, I just, I just wanted to point out because Angel's talking about Sting and like Sting. In my opinion, is one of the only guys who could pull off the. He's wearing a mask, a sting mask, and he takes off the sting mask, and it's just sting underneath the mask. Which to this day, I think is one of the funniest moments in wrestling history. Sting is one of the guys like he's like a Jericho type, where it's yeah, like absolutely. there is no period in his career, or like you, you've got a lot, you got you got some different forms of Sting over the point, the the the, the period uh, over the, his his long career, but every version of Sting kicked ass. Surfer Sting back in like the 80s, early 90s here, kicked ass. Crow Sting when he was fighting the NWO, completely kicked ass. TNA Sting, even though TNA was terrible, he kicked ass in TNA. And even when he came back to WWE and he was like 50 years old, 55 years old, whatever he was, he still kicked ass. Sting is awesome. Sting is one of the best ever. I really like the, st- uh, the Stinger. I know it's on this match with the death the Stinger death drop. Love that finishing movie. It's so simple, just a backwards DDT. But I, I I watched that uh, one match you had with Vader. Not this match with Vader. Uh, you told me another match to watch with Sting Vader. I forget what year. I forget which pay per view. But I went back and watched it, and I just it, it it delivers. Sting Vader delivers, and so does yeah. this. Well, we start off this with they have the the coin flip, and it ends up being Vader and Guardian Angel in the first match of this weird triangle double header whatever they 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 decided to call this match the guardian angel of course best known as the big boss man from wwf one of my favorite heels of like the 80s a guy that i just thought was awesome so believable so intense really just you bought that he was this just psychotic like i think that the 
one phrase used about the big boss man. I want to say it was Gorilla Monsoon, or maybe it was Heenan said it once. He's the kind of guy who would bring a lawn chair to a lynching. And I just bought it. I mean, he had that just kind of inner just psychoticness. He was awesome. This is Guardian Angel, who they put him in a red beret and a red leather jacket, and he looked like the Kool-Aid man. And it wasn't, it's just not the same. It's just not the same guy. It's Vader, but Vader and Boss Man, they go for about six, seven minutes. And you mentioned it, kind of, it's, it's big boy stuff, big hoss wrestling, big boy spots. Um, you got Harley Race on the outside, the legendary Harley Race, um, managing Vader, serving as his second, doing some heel stuff on the outside. And then you got a ref bump, race headbutts, uh, Boss Man. Vader bomb, one, two, three. And then we move on to Vader Sting and just pure wrestling. This was, I thought, blew away everything else on the card. I thought there were some pretty decent matches on this card. I, again, we we all really like the Regal Johnny B. Bad match. I thought the tag match was was pretty solid. But I thought Vader Sting blew away anything else on the show, just in terms of like a wrestling match especially the first 15 minutes before they stopped it and they went to the five minutes because I think they got a little bit tired. And obviously Vader, who is 400 pounds, you don't usually see guys who are that size work like that for a half hour. So it's understandable that he got a little bit tired, but that, especially that first 15 minutes, just terrific, terrific stuff. Yeah. I mean, you probably could go without the five minutes, like Jake said with the, uh, how does this work in kayfabe overtime, the five-minute extra to get the pinfall or submission, whatever they, they need to win the match, and go straight to the... If you change the last 15 minutes a little bit, the last few minutes of that 15-minute period, uh, to make it so that they are exhausted and they are dragging this fight out, um, and then you go into that five-minute first person to get knocked down loses, which I love that concept. I wasn't sure I was going to feel about it when it was introduced, when I heard that was how the match was going to end. And then they do it. If they, it was on the edge of your seat. You don't know when they're going to fall. It's just nonstop tension. And then yeah, what see, do you guys? Go ahead. Yeah, I, I was going to ask, like, what do you guys think about that stipulation? So they do the, they do the 15 minutes and then they do the five minutes. I think we could have probably done without the break between the 15 and the five minutes. Didn't really make sense where they just kind of do, like a sudden death, like, all right, if you guys can't get the pinfall in the next five minutes, then we move to the next phase or whatever. But after that, those 20 minutes, they do, all right, it's quote-unquote sudden death. And whoever is the first person to get knocked off their feet is the winner. And obviously, like, it works a little bit better when you have a guy like Vader where he's a huge guy and a big part of it is, like, he is really hard to knock off his feet. But I thought that's a really interesting kind of stipulation that you don't see pretty much ever, at least anymore. And I thought it added a lot to the match that first, first get like we passed the time limit, first person get knocked off their feet with uh, uh, the first person knock their opponent off their feet wins. What do you guys think of that? Because that's really unique, and I actually really liked it. I was a big fan of it uh, because, like you know, going back to what I said already, I'm a big fan of like can this match. Can this match subvert my expectations? And like I was watching it and like legitimately invested, and uh, and I'm sure you'll you'll touch on this too. But like at one point, um, Sting hits him, hits Vader, and Vader hits the ground, and the ref is dealing with the fighting outside of the ring, and he doesn't see it. And you know, 
I'm a I'm a 23 year old guy, you know, 20 years after that match, and I'm sitting in my chair like, can't you even see the Raiders on the ground? Because I wanted Sting to win that badly, like, and like Sting just like falling onto the ropes. Bobby Heenan's like, oh, I think his knee touched. I think his knee touched. Like, it's just it, it added a bunch of great like energy to the match. I thought. I yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with Jake. I also was very much feeling like, ref. Look, Vader's on the ground. Come on, man. Look at him. Look at him. <laughs> and, and you have Bobby the Brain saying, "Oh, he slipped. It doesn't count." Um, and then you see, uh, I'm sure David, you'll allude to this, but then we have the Mask Man come in with a run in, yes. uh, with the same lead pipe that took out Hogan. He hits uh, Sting in the knee, and Sting goes down. Vader gets up. Ref comes back from watching uh, Harley Race and uh, the Guardian Angel duke it out. And then the ref rules in favor of Vader. And we're all mad. Yep. yep. And Vader is now the new number one contender for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Doesn't actually get a title shot until January of the next year because they were dealing with Hogan and Flair, which is the next thing we've got on the ledger of this show. The big segment between Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair. Neither of the two biggest stars in WCW are actually in the Roanoke Civic Center that night, but they're appearing over a pre-taped uh, like backstage segment where you've got Hogan, who is, quote-unquote, in his home in Florida, but he's obviously at like a Gold's Gym, just like banging out some buys and tries. <laughs> and you've got Ric Flair, who is apparently at a casino in Vegas. He's surrounded by, by the finest honeys that 1994 has to offer. And they're talking to each other over the the old school like landline phones that have like the curly the curly wire I used to have and, like, the curly phone cord and Hulk is trying to to get Ric Flair who is you know the consummate heel who is the bad guy of course every you know Hulk Hogan who had just come over from WWF the year before he is the the greatest super baby face of all time and he's trying to make Hogan Flair happened. He's trying to get the heel Ric Flair to accept his challenge and meet him one-on-one and get him to quote-unquote come out of retirement and wrestle, wrestle Hogan. Hulk offering to put his career on the line if Ric Flair beats him. And just one of the things, I, I, a lot to talk about in this segment, but one of the things that I noticed here is that Hulkster uses the term hanging and banging a lot. And I don't know exactly what he means by hanging and banging, but he was implying that himself, the Hulkster, was the one doing the hanging and banging. When Ric Flair is in Vegas chilling with a bottle of champagne and four honeys, I think he's the one doing the hanging and banging. <laughs> so uh, this is my first real introduction to Hulk, or the Hulk. Um Obviously, he has the WWE spots nowadays, but that's just wired down for the pop. Um, so this is my first true introduction to Hulk Hogan. I'm not... Sh- there are things I think about um, when I'm watching these pay-per-views. One thing for me, as someone that is more of a pa- casual fan than you two, is how they fit into the modern times, or like how would this would this work today. I'm not convinced Hulk, that character, gets as over as he did back then. No, probably not. Because his promo, he starts off fine, and the promo he's cutting before they start cutting in Flair is fine. There's nothing special. Um, But as the promo goes on, 
the way he speaks and the frequent use of... I'm not convinced Hulk doesn't use brother instead of like. He'll just say brother, brother, brother. When, he, when we all normally say like, he's saying brother. Just because that made his character unique, I guess. But I did yeah. love Fla- Flair in this spot. Flair's command of the mic and just com- pacing the entire interaction and the back and forth. He does a great job carrying this with someone who has a very unique dialect, how he paces, like Hogan's dialect and how he speaks is very unique. And Flair does a great job bouncing back and forth off that. One of the things that I'd notice whenever I, I, I watch Rick, or not notice, one of the things I think of is the one time that Rick Flair, there was a documentary on him, and he estimated that he had slept with over 10,000 women in his lifetime, which. Like the math on that is just incredible because that's yeah. like that's like sleeping with at least one girl a night and then like two girls every third night or something like that. Like those are wilt numbers. The there, but also like I don't know. Maybe I'm just crazy, but like I don't see Ric Flair as like that good looking. Maybe I'm just crazy, but like whenever I look at Ric Flair, I don't. I'm not like, oh man, that's probably a guy that slept with ten thousand women. That's just not the first thought that crosses my mind outside of him alleging that at one point. But, but maybe I'm just crazy. But he's Ric Flair. Yeah, he's the nature boy. I don't think the rules apply to him. Like the general <laughs> rules of like conventional male attractiveness apply to Ric Flair because he's Ric Flair. It's the confidence. <laughs> it's Ric Flair. It's the it's the confidence. It's the fe- feathery hair. I mean, you can't put a price on that. That hair is phenomenal. And I think he's another one like Dusty, who it didn't feel like they were playing a character. Like, it felt like Ric Flair was just like being himself. And be like, and, you know, like it didn't seem weird that he was with, like David said, four honeys and a bottle of champagne in Vegas. Like, like why wouldn't he, would be, yeah. why would, why wouldn't he be doing that? He's Ric Flair. <laughs> And even the version of Flair that I was introduced to, the one that was like mid two thousands, he's in, he's pushing sixty. He's 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 starting to lose any semblance of athleticism he has left. He was a babyface then, and it's not because he had he didn't use heel tactics. It's just because he's so universally respected for how he like how he carries himself in the profession that even though his character was a heel, everybody loved him, and they couldn't they couldn't get the crowd to boo yeah. Flair. Like yeah. the, well, only, that's... the only time Flair could get booed is if he did something truly despicable, heelish, which would be like a low blow to a baby face or like Shawn Michaels. Um, but that's how great Flair was at his gimmick is that his gimmick was to be the best heel ever. And it got over as a face. Yeah, I mean, like his gimmick was that he was just the coolest guy in the world and that he was like he lived the life everyone wanted to live. He was an asshole about it, but he was really cool. Like, everyone wants to be Ric Flair. Everyone wants to be the guy with the limos and the cars and just the and the hot babes and is just partying every night and having the time of his life. Like, he's the coolest guy in the world. And I thought it was interesting, Angela, you mentioned this at the beginning of the show when we were talking about a little bit about Flair Hogan, how you couldn't really tell how the crowd was really reading Hogan and really reacting to Hogan. That's because... Supposedly, I read this, I, I went back and uh, read what, what Dave Meltzer had to write about the event at the time, and supposedly, according to him at least, WCW cut the arena mics 
because they were booing Hogan so hard and cheering Flair so much. When Hogan is supposed to be the the big top babyface, that, that's why they spent a billion dollars on him to come over from WWF. And Flair, even though he's the most popular wrestler they've ever had, is nominally he's supposed to be the heel, even though everyone loves him and he's unbelievably popular. And they're in the middle of Flair country. And this is WCW, which they were trying to expand and go nationally, but they were still very much had that like regional Southeastern really like cult following of those people who were just hardcore fans. And no matter what, no matter who they were trying to push as the number one guy, whether it was Hulk or whoever, number one to them was always going to be Flair and the four horsemen. And I mean, like you look in the crowd, like, you see dudes all night throwing up the four. Everybody, like hundreds of people are throwing up the four for the four horsemen all night. That even though they're technically heels, or Ric Flair is technically a heel, it's Flair country, it's WCW. He's not going to get booed against anybody. But because they wanted Hogan to be the babyface, they can't have him get booed like that. They can't have Flair get cheered like that so much over him. It's 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 like I think there's a parallel to it. I think it was the 92 Royal Rumble, maybe 91 or 92 when um, Sid threw Hogan over the top rope and the fans cheered Sid and booed Hogan when Hogan came back. And then even though he was a babyface, he pulled the heel move of like coming back in and pulling Sid out of the ring and eliminating him, even though he had just been eliminated. The fans all like heavily booed Hogan for that and heavily cheered Sid. Because Sid was cool. Sid was always super goddamn cool. But because it didn't fit the narrative they wanted, they edited that out. They like they like muted the arena mics on like the replay. And even now, if you go back on WWE Network and watch that Royal Rumble, they still have it edited so that like they have fake cheers piped in for Hogan when he pulls Sid out. It's like the same thing. Like that's why Ange for you was like hard to kind of figure out how the crowd was reacting to Hogan was because they weren't going to let you know how the crowd was reacting. We didn't like it. And, and me, myself, like, I'm, obviously I probably I didn't see the prime Hogan or, like, what made Hogan the biggest deal in wrestling because he's, he's one of the top guys all time in terms of, like, how WWE presents their past stars. Hogan's one of the top guys. But it's weird to see a guy like that. I mean, Cena, for the early part of his career, he was beloved. He was never an arena that booed Cena until later on where it was like, oh, the five moves of Doom. He's getting this unbelievable push. He gets all these opportunities. And then you start to hear the John Cena sucks chance in his uh, entrance. So it's weird to see Hogan, a guy that I've been told is like the ba- biggest baby face of all time, and he's getting these mixed reactions and like david said it's just actually negative reactions yeah and i think for hogan it's it's a fact like the reason why he got so big like you you talk about like not really being able to sort of figure out like how would hogan go over if he was starting out now i think it was just like a kind of time and place type thing where he was like the first guy that or one of the first guys that like moving from like the seventies to like the eighties of wrestling, like that, that change of just uh, that change of era where he was one of the first guys who was really like, so like 
larger than life and just such a like a crazy like bombastic character like he kind of took what superstar billy graham did and turned it up to like 11 and it was like the transit like people who had grown up like watching like someone like bruno san martino or bob backland who were like kind of understated like baby faces then all of a sudden you have the super over the top like it's like going from black and white to like color you know, it's like just a completely different dude. And like, he was so much, and he was like, you know, like a lot of wrestlers back then were kind of pudgy and like didn't look great. But then you have this dude who's like six, eight and jacked and tan. And like, he looks like a, he looks like a superhero. He's like a cartoon character. And he was one of the first guys who was really like that. And I think it was because of that. He was so different. He just went crazy and just caught fire. And so like, and, and by this point, like, the kids who had grown up with Hulk as their superhero, now they're, you know, teenagers and he's not that cool anymore. They want somebody like like a Stone Cold who's like a cool anti-hero. And that's how it kind of changes like what is cool and what gets cheered. But yeah, so we finished that up and now we move to the big match, the main events, the reason for the season. Dusty Rhodes had two sons, Dustin and Cody. But the War Games match was his favorite child. It's Team Rhodes, Dusty Rhodes, his son Dustin Rhodes, and the Nasty Boys against the Stud Stable. Terry Funk, Double A, the Enforcer, Arn Anderson, Bunkhouse Buck, and Colonel Robert Parker, their manager, who is wrestling in this match, who is 44 years old at the time, but he looks like he is at least 60 years old when this happens. There's no way he's 44. Come on now. He, is a confirmed 44 years old when this happens in a war games match classic original style in its first incarnation war games match and i one of the things i was kind of interested to finding out at least from angelo because i know you've seen only your your only exposure to the war games concept has been i know you've seen the nxt war games matches which are similar matches, but not the exact same match. There are some key differences in just the way it works. Number one being the most obvious cosmetic one. The cage has a roof in the original War Games match. And then the ending being different. There's the concept of the match beyond. Once everybody is in the cage, they alternate entering the match. And then once everybody's in the cage then the only way to win is by submit or surrender. And obviously in the NXT War Games matches, you can do pinfalls and you can win every way that you can normally win a match. No pinfalls in this match. Submit or surrender. For you guys, What is what, how do you compare these matches to the NXT TakeOver, or the NXT takeover War Games matches? And, and do you like them better, like them less? What are your guys' opinions on it? I mean, it's just two. Different, I think I think the fact that they are two different types of matches um, works in favor of both of them. I think you could. There's a place for both this version of War Games, which I'd be curious to see how AEW is doing their blood and guts whenever that happens. If is it going to be closer to what Dusty had imagined, or is it going to be closer to the WWE version? Uh, how, uh, however, you do have like more spots in that takeover version, whereas the way this was presented, it's not a match. It's more like a brawl. It's going to be a knockdown, drag out absolute fight people are gonna be bleeding it's gonna look like a bar uh bar fight and i feel like 
there's a place obviously in wrestling for that you see bar fights you see the street fights this is a contained street fight and it's just it's supposed to be gritty it's supposed to look physical it's supposed to look painful even if there isn't a lot of weapons or spots or people doing flips onto mounds of people uh it's just supposed to be gritty and i think that makes it kind of work for it i think that this match uh like in the the modern war games matches uh like uh, i think it was either last year or the year before we got ricochet doing the double moonsault off the top of the cage everybody's like oh man that's like such a dangerous spot it looks so cool but I, this match to me felt even more dangerous because it felt more like uh, it felt more like the cage was there to force everybody to fight each other and to result in this like old school type of like knockdown drag out brawl. Um, so it felt like really dangerous, even without like a ton of weapons being introduced or uh, you know like high risk spots. Uh, I, I really like the atmosphere of it, uh, so I, I think it worked for what they were trying to do then. And I think that the NXT matches really work for what they're doing now. Yeah, and the craziest thing, too, is the fact that they have that gap in the ring for this match. Um, whereas with NXT, you see those steel, uh, the steel kind of connected between the two rings. I would say that's less dangerous than seeing that there's just nothing between them. You see uh, there's that one spot where Terry Funk takes a pile driver and falls in between the spaces, and they're commenting, well, there's only one way to get back in. You can't go out the other way. And it's just... There's you can't really do a lot there to make it safe if you don't have the floor to stand on because now your your footing is compromised because there's less foot space for you to land on. You can't control your body the way you'd want to. And if you fall between that, you're at the mercy of gravity trying to figure out how you can smoothly fall through and not end up taking a really bad bump through the ring. Yeah. I think kind of speaking a little bit to what you guys were kind of saying, just like the different kind of feel and the different aura of the War Games match here, the original War Games compared to what they do now, I think it just kind of speaks a little bit to like kind of culturally what WCW was. I mean, at this point in 1994, they're trying to expand nationally and try to become a a big like full-scale contender to the WWF, but at its roots, it was the kind of regional southeastern promotion, and kind of it kind of harkens back to that like that sort of southern brawling style where it was like that's what Dusty Rhodes did, and that's what Terry Funk did, and a big Dusty Rhodes match or a big Terry Funk match was going to be this just violent, bloody brawl. It wasn't going to be like a bunch of dudes doing like, it wasn't going to be Adam Cole doing a Panama sunrise off the, off the cage. They're not going to be doing those kind of big wow spots. It's going to be a fight and people are going to be bleeding everywhere. And it's going to be really violent. And it's going to be, it's going to be great in a different, completely different way than the NXT ones are great. And I think that just, just the way that it's, yeah. I mean, Dusty, we see him throughout the entire pay-per-view of the promos. I'm sorry to cut you off. I'm just so excited about Dusty because the few moments we get Dusty in this match are just absolutely incredible. Uh, You you feel the cringe when he's the last one to come in for Team Rhodes, and you see Arn Anderson, Terry Funk, and Buckhouse Buck uh, waiting for him in the ring. They're standing in front of his door, and you're like, oh, no, Dusty's going to get killed. He's a 50-year-old man going in against guys that are full-time workers, and then he just comes in and starts dropping elbows on top of people's heads. You just see that emphasis that he puts in he's more nimble than you think he would be at that age he's throwing people into the ring uh not the ring into the cage and it's just electric the moment he gets in you hear the crowd go nuts and man i've said it throughout this entire 
uh, podcast. Dusty, I am a Dusty Mark now because he was just electric through, throughout all of yeah. this. Jake, I know you, you kind of said to us before we started recording, like you wanted this podcast for you to be like, this is about how much I love Dusty Rhodes. I know we kind of talked about it a little bit in promos, but like, I mean, we see him for like literally in the ring for about a minute of this match, but like there's so much packed into that one minute and the crowd's going insane for the entire thing. Dude, I, Dusty Rhodes, just the emotion that he can convey and the feeling that he can get from the crowd is just phenomenal. Like Ann said, like you see him walking in to like, like a massacre. Like there's three guys that are just going to kick his ass when he walks in. But, like, he's just dropping elbows on all of them. And I'm sitting in my chair at 23 years old. just like, get him, Dusty, get him, get him. Like, I'm just so heavily invested in Dusty Rhodes doing well. Um, but, and I think, uh, I, I think we, we had talked about his promo style and, like, how he speaks. Like, it's just, it never felt like he was unbeatable. It felt like he could have been beaten and just refused to do it. So, I, I think that's why I got so heavily invested. I mean, he's just, you know, I don't know if he's, put into the greatest of all time conversation a lot. Uh, but I, I definitely think that he, he, he should be in that top 10 combo. And you see that, like, like you say, like the, uh, doesn't want to refuses to be defeated. And I, th- that kind of goes along with how this match ends where he has, uh, Colonel, uh, Robert Parker and the figure four, um, something you miss they show it in the playback but something i missed the first time they like as it's going live is he's actively fighting off terry funk from that position like he's throwing fists at terry terry selling the heck out of it and it's showing just he refuses to let go he refuses to lose this match and he's willing to do anything he wants to win this match nowadays when you see someone in like a submission move like that you never see them fight off something else. You really rarely see them fight off the attack coming in from the other tag team partner or whatever. It's usually as soon as that tag team partner gets in and involves themselves, the move is gone. Dusty kept it held in and was fighting it off through until Parker surrendered. And I thought that kind of goes along with what you said is that he refused to lose. Also, I can't, go this entire segment without mentioning that Terry Funk looks a lot like Brahma Blackwater and I couldn't stop thinking that throughout the entire night well let's I mean let's talk about Terry Funk for a little bit because I mean you talk about like the goat conversation I mean Dusty Rhodes I think is talked about a lot I think a lot of people will talk about Arn Anderson because like just for you know because very few people have ever had a career like Arn Anderson did, and he's one of the great, like, just in-ring technicians of all time. Terry Funk is a guy that, Angelo, I, I, was, I, I want you to watch more Terry Funk, because I know you're a huge, like, I know you were a huge, like, Dean Ambrose, like, John Moxley guy. And yes, I feel I like am. you would, if you, wa- like, watched a lot of Terry Funk, you would love Terry Funk. And I think he's a guy that has to be considered in that GOAT conversation, because... By the time this match happens, he's already been wrestling for about 30 years. He's 75 years old. He's still wrestled. He's been literally everywhere that anyone can wrestle in, like, in history, in the world. And he's been awesome everywhere for like 55 years. What were you guys, just kind of impressions of Terry Funk? The funniest thing for me is that when you think of Funk... You think of just like this 70s disco music, and he is the antithesis to that. I know I butchered that word, but I mean, it's just, there's nothing funky about Terry Funk. Um, 
he's just this gritty guy. Um, I, I was looking through his Wikipedia and seeing what he did. He obviously a very good hardcore wrestler. Um, you got he said uh, like you said he had been wrestling for a long time before this. I he's a guy that I knew the name of, but never really saw a lot. Like I've not seen a lot of Terry Funk matches or Terry Funk period. I just know the name. Um, look at the Wikipedia. I see him. He looks like someone I've seen somewhere. I don't. I I couldn't tell you where, but. He did a good job in this match. The way he sells everything in this match, because it's more or less, it's your typical War Games match, and at the end it's more like a squash for uh, Team Rhodes. He's doing everything to sell. And the punches, like selling the uh, dusty punches from the ground, you see him just cock his head back like he's like he's flopping in a NBA game. So he's he's such a great professional, You can and you can see that throughout the entire War Games match. Jake, yeah, I think that is it should absolutely be in that greatest of all time conversation because, or I don't want to say exactly because, but uh, due in large part to that longevity. I mean, when you say that he's wrestled for so long, he's like his last appearance was in like 2017. Okay. And he started like with, like with Dory Funk Jr. Back in like, I think it was like 1965. I mean, when, when you look at his body of work across there at no point did people look at Terry Funk and go, Oh man, he sucks now. You know, sometimes people will look at like what the Undertaker's doing now. And they're like, man, he's beat up. He's he's just not doing what he used to. But like with Terry Funk, he just did things to hide that all the time and still put on great matches. I mean, I think um, I think that definitely deserves to be put into the the greatest of all time conversation. And you know that that, that ability to evolve. Um, we we talk a lot about Jericho on this podcast because we think Jericho is awesome. But again, that ability to evolve. Uh, with the times is is hard to come by, and I think Terry Funk definitely had that ability. He also yeah, has, I, I, sorry, David. He also has like the best, or not the best spot, but one of the most memorable things in this match where he tries to throw the steel chair into the into the War Games match, and either he forgets <laughs> that there's a top to the cage. Either way, he doesn't get it all the way up, and so he it looks like he kind of looks around, and just says, "You know what? I'm going to use my shoe. The shoe's going to be the weapon." And you see the shoe get used. <laughs> Frequently, you just start seeing people whip with it, punching people with it. You see uh, Bunkhouse Buck remove his belt and one of his suspenders, and they start whipping people with that. So I give them a lot of props for being creative using their ring gear as weapons in this match. Because nowadays, with the, the modern takeover version of that, is you get you throw in everything you can find under the ring. You have people bringing those weapons, chairs, tables, sometimes even ladders they'll bring in they'll just bring in whatever they can find to set up those spots. Whereas in this, it's just, we're going to use what we have available. And I think the, that shows a lot of creativity on their end. Yeah. So kind of going through this match, they start off with Dustin Rhodes, the natural Dustin Rhodes. This is young Dustin. I mean, we see Dustin Rhodes today now at, you know, 25 years later, and he's in his, I think he's what, like 50, 51 years old wrestling for AEW. Still really good. This is a different Dustin Rhodes. I mean, this is young Dustin Rhodes. He'd only been wrestling for a few years. And I think it really stands out, his athleticism at this point in his career. Not that he's, you know, unathletic now, but so much more athletic than his dad, especially then, but I I think really than his dad ever was. I mean, I think the natural young Dustin Rhodes, really, really impressive guy in this match, facing off against Arn. And I thought this was some, some pretty good stuff. And had my favorite spot in the match. We talked about the gap between the two rings. We saw later in the match, uh, 
Terry Funk gets pile driven in between the the rings and he just kind of disappears in between them for a little bit. In this part of the match, Dustin ends up kind of turning Arn upside down, sticking his head in between the rings and then just kind of shoving him up and down like he's using his head to plunge a toilet. It's like a swirly. It was like my favorite thing to happen in this match. So we start off with Dustin and Arn and I don't know that I mean it's it's interesting to watch a young Dustin Rhodes at this point is Chris. Obviously, like our generation, we've seen Dustin Rhodes as Gold Dust and now is like his older self as like kind of the wily, you know, ring vet who knows every trick and is a great technician and knows what he's doing in the ring at all times. But this is young Dustin. This is 25 years ago, Dustin, where he's like a young, fresh faced athlete in the in the shadow of his dad. And I think it's really interesting to watch him then as composed as, as a, as opposed to now. I mean, that's the thing with uh, Dustin Rhodes and Goldust, even when he was at Goldust, who's just this absolute loon. Um, his thing was always, Oh, he's a wily veteran. You can't shoot. You can't shortchange Goldust there. Or it'll get you. And here he's just this young guy. He's this white me baby face. Um, and he does have a lot of that same athleticism. You see the same, uh, idiosyncrasies that he shows throughout the match like how he kind of like how we talk about the rock and how he makes every move look different or unique and you can't really replicate that you see a few of the moves that dustin does that are only dustin moves you don't see the way he set like the, his punches his punches are very unique and he start you start to see his punches here look very similar to what he has now what he had as gold dust um also arn i mean i mentioned his promo earlier and how intense he was um I also liked him in this match, like just watching him and seeing what he was doing in the match. Um, he had at one point that spinebuster, that Arn Anderson spinebuster, which was just picture perfect. You should be showing that in wrestling schools all over the world. Uh, you can't get a better spinebuster than that Arn spinebuster that happens in this match. Uh, but the, having these two start the match, I mean, these are the two guys that could probably carry the match the longest. Uh, looking at Buckhouse Buck and Terry Funk. Uh, obviously, you're not going to start with Colonel Parker, but Arn kind of still young in his career. Dustin, obviously, he's very early into his career. You want to throw those young guys out there early because they're going to have the longevity to do more things throughout the entire match. Yeah. So, oh, Jake, you want to go? Uh, yeah, I think that like just speaking on on Dustin Rhodes, I mean, I can't say enough good things about him because I think he's another guy who's just changed with the times, and also like. To buy into that gold dust gimmick for as long as he did, I mean, he deserves a lot of props for that because, um, like, he he bought into it and just did it wholeheartedly uh, for, I don't know how long he was in WWE doing that. Would you say 15 years or so? Yeah. Then he was there and then left and came back. Um, and, you know, and was never, like, a center of attention. He was kind of always in secondary feuds. So I, I think Dustin deserves a lot of props for the career that he had. Yeah, because you would figure, like, yeah, I I don't know where the origin of that gimmick came from, but you could figure that he he would he could say you know hey like I'm Dusty Rhodes' son I don't I don't need to do something like this I don't need to do something that weird but right. he he always committed so wholeheartedly to that role and made it great yeah. I don't know if there's anyone else who could have pulled it off quite like he did he could have been a real heel with that too like just saying that oh I'm like it would be really kind of an inter- interesting juxtaposition seeing Dusty this genuinely beloved character uh who every crowd loves and then you have Dusty's kid who's named after him as oh I'm Dusty Rhodes's kid I don't need to do that or I'm Dusty Rhodes's kid so you even have any idea who I am sort of like what MJF kind of does now just this 
pompous, entitled gimmick where he's just, my dad's Dusty Rhodes. You think I'm going to do this kind of War Games match? That would have been, he could have gone that way with the character and he just never did. I think you kind of do that in terms of, because of how beloved Dusty is, it would be not a mark on his career, just uh, you don't, one of those things you just don't do. Right. So you, we start out again, Dustin and Arn, and then we have the the coin flip on the outside to determine who gets to go in first. And surprise, surprise, the heels win again in another War Games. I think heels are undefeated all time in War Games coin flips. So we get Bunkhouse Buck coming in, who's just a big, big old guy. He's wrestling in in jeans, suspenders, and cowboy boots. Uh, and a fun fact about Bunkhouse Buck, who was like one of the guys in this in this match who was never like really a big star. He ended up about 15 years later, making one appearance on WWE programming in 2010 on an episode of SmackDown, where he showed up as uh, Jack Swagger senior, Jack Swagger's <laughs> father. They decided to just bring in bunkhouse buck from WCW. And so he was on one episode of SmackDown in 2010. That was a funny little, little fact to it. He looks like he'd fit right in with the Wyatt family. Uh, that's yeah. I know it's kind of typical oh Southern gimmick, but I mean he just the way he looks and the way he spoke to the uh, in the promo he cut earlier in the bathroom, that Southern ramble, almost Bayou speak that you kind of uh, we know Ed Orgeron for, uh, it would just fit right in with the Wyatts. Yeah, for sure. So Bunkhouse Buck comes in, and then. Jerry Sags from the from the Nasty Boys is in next, two on two, brawling all over the place. Harry Funk is next in. He tries to throw a chair apparently into the ring, like over the over the cage into the ring. But uh, yeah, Angela, you mentioned this. Not sure if he realized there was a roof, and either way, he didn't make it close to making it on top of the cage. He basically just threw the chair about three feet in the air and then said, "Screw it!" Takes off his cowboy boot which is loaded with something and then runs in and just starts beating the hell everybody with the cowboy boot. Um, we get Brian knobs from the nasty boys is in next for the good guys. And then comes in. Now we're reaching like the real fever pitch of the match. The last member of the stud stable to come in the manager, Colonel Robert Parker, <laughs> who is not a regular wrestler. And he is selling this whole thing. Like he is absolutely terrified of getting into this match. Oh, my heart. <laughs> drenched in sweat it is absolutely disgusting the door opens and he's like terrified to even go in he punches dustin Rhodes once and is selling like he broke his hand and you know it all kind of reaches a fever pitch from there everyone is whipping each other with belts they're whipping each other with buck suspenders and then dusty comes in and just the way the kind of the match progresses it kind of becomes but you know, once the match beyond starts, it's submit or surrender. And you know that once Dusty comes in, Colonel Robert Parker is going to be the one submitting because Dusty's going to come in and clean house and beat everyone's ass. And Colonel Robert Parker is going to be the one because he is not a wrestler and he is terrified to even be there. He's going to be the one submitting. But just this one minute that Dusty was in the ring, and you know, there was a lot of there's, I, I thought some good stuff on this match. None better than like Vader Sting, which I thought was a great match. But there, Dusty Rhodes, one minute in this match, packed in more electricity in the one minute than the previous two and a half hours of this show. <laughs> so we get Dusty puts Colonel Robert Parker in the figure four. 
the nasty boys are beating the hell out of Parker while he's in the figure four, dropping elbows on him left and right. And then he submits after about a minute that Dusty is in this match. That's it. That's the end of the War Games match. And Colonel Parker sweating more than Jake at a basketball game. Jake, what were you saying? I, I, I thought that that in the, you know, I mean, it's, it's pretty typical, like, early 90s where it's, like, the bad guys get their comeuppance. Um, but I, I think it's, you know, I, I just thought it was perfect. Dusty comes in, cleans house, gets that tap out, you know. I, I, I just think it was perfect. Yeah. So and, I know, or, Angelo? I mean, what Jake said, it was. Um, I'm really happy that this was a shorter version of War Games. Um, yeah. It didn't. It had no reason being this 30 to 40 minute brawl of a bunch of different spots, uh, blood. A, a, this was a nice beginning war games. You just have the simple concept. These two got, teams don't like each other. You have that great spot for Dusty just coming in to clean house. Quick tap out for Colonel Parker, who's not really a true wrestler. He's more of a manager. Uh, makes everything logical, say, uh, safe and. Honestly, if it if it went any longer, then you start to see a lot of slowdown, and especially with this time period where you don't have this the endurance that I think a lot of wrestlers have now, you start to see people just slip and it becomes very sloppy. So, yeah. twenty minutes. This was match, great. this match, kind of was what it was going to be. I mean, it, maybe if you have Mang in that spot, as you know, in the storyline, it was originally supposed to be Mang in that spot. Then maybe you have that longer kind of really bloody violent brawl as you kind of tended to see in War Games matches before this. But when you have Colonel Parker in there as the last guy, you know that that match is going to end pretty soon after Dusty gets in and gets his hands on him. So the match kind of, I feel like, kind of was what it was going to be, and it was it was good for what it was. But so kind of going back, reviewing over this this show as a whole. I mean, Angelo. I know. I think this is kind of your first overall exposure to WCW, and this is at you know prime peak WCW, like post NWO WCW. But what were your guys' just kind of overall thoughts on the show as a whole? I mean, for me, uh, I think this was a good introduction because uh, it, it's not the crazy fancy stuff. It's it's more of an earnest pay per view in terms of who's involved. I got to see some guys I recognize, like Steven Regal. I got to see uh, Steve Austin, uh, Dustin, Dusty Rhodes. So I got to see people I recognize. But at the same time, you get that introduction of what WCW was about. It gives me a good idea of what that era was like. I feel like if I had started off with something like NWO with Hogan um, in his prime, not his prime, but over- arguably one of his best uh, characters that he's had to date. Uh, then you start to have everything else tainted because nothing's going to live up to that. This was a good starting point, and everything else that I see would probably be measured against uh, Fall Brawl 94. Sure. Like, what I think the most during all this is, you know, it, this, this didn't have a Hulk match, and it didn't have a Flair match. Um, and their ability to, like, still put on a very good show um, was was surprising to me, honestly, because a lot of times, like, whenever promotions don't have their biggest stars, a lot of times they struggle, or I don't know if I want to say struggle, but it's not the same product. And I think that them weaving Flair and Hogan throughout the show made sense, but still putting all the emphasis on, you know, Vader and Sting gave them, like, they got, like, 20, 25 minutes of of time. Uh, The War Games match got 20 minutes. I think that that's all... uh, um, 
really good for this uh, pay-per-view that doesn't have two of their biggest stars. So I really enjoyed it, and uh, I'm hoping that we get another War Games match before too long. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So that will lead us to one of our last segments of the show, our two and a half marks. Angelo, you want to start out? All right, first, I have to start off with my half mark. I feel like going from half to two makes a lot more sense. Uh, Starting off with Steven Regal, yeah, he lost his belt, but just seeing how he carried himself and how he played that character, uh, seeing him walk out to the ring with the powdered wig and the red coat, you could tell he's just he's oozing heel. And it's not just cheap heel heat, it's genuine. I am believing on this character, the way he... Uh, portrays himself in the ring how he grabs the ropes where he hooks his arm around it he's not touching the rope he's just saying get him off me get him off me uh him reaching out for his manager's cane to try and get the pinfall and then the ref kicking out his reactions to getting caught doing heel tactics it was perfect so i have to give it to steven regal um i was very impressed with him uh my one mark i mean i said earlier i'm a huge sting mark i'm gonna give it to sting here seeing him throw around a guy that was 400 pounds invader for a 25 minute slugfest i mean it's just incredible to watch i can't believe it it's got a little bit of john cena where he's doing these amazing power moves the guys that look about twice his size um you could hear the crowd he had the match won. he won the match he's a rightful winner and i can't believe they robbed him like that um but I'm going to give that one mark to Sting. And then finally, I can't not go throughout this entire pay-per-view and not give the two stars to Dusty Rhodes. The promos that you see him do, whether it's in the bar with the Nasty Boys, whether it's the promo where he's on WCW talking to Dustin saying, look, you don't need a partner, you need family. Uh, that Dusty drawl is music to my ears. The one minute he was in War Games was absolutely electric. He secures the win for his team. Two, two marks has to go to Dusty Rhodes. Jake, you're up. For me, uh, I had to give my half mark to, to, as the graphic said, S.S. Austin, which I assume stood for a stunning Steve Austin. I'm just assuming that. Uh, I had to give him the half mark because he just he lays down for Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Okay? You know, I, I seeing a guy that would later go on to become arguably like a top three star all time in the wrestling business uh, go out on his back in 30 seconds to a mystery opponent is uh, just incredible to me. Um, so I had to give him a shout out for, for taking that strongly. Uh, I gave my one mark. I, I couldn't decide whether to give it to Vader or Sting, so I just gave it to both of them. Um, David said earlier that it takes two to tango, and I think in this match they both did what they do super well. Vader was a big bad guy. Sting was a plucky underdog fighting against him, and it just worked. Um like Ann said, they get to the uh, to the the end of the match, and it's like, oh man, Sting just won. But you know, re- referees are incompetent in wrestling for some reason, and uh, turned away from it at the last minute. And then I gave my two my two marks, like Ann did, to Dusty. I mean, you just can't you can't watch this pay per view and not think about how great he is as a promo, as a as a, a worker. Um, it really made me want to go back and watch uh, like late seventies, early eighties, Dusty to see some of his actual like work rate matches. Um, Cause I just think he's absolutely phenomenal. And I think that he was the star of the pay-per-view um, without, you know, like I said, Hogan and Flair on it. So uh, stunning Steve Austin, Vader Sting and Dusty. Those are my two and a half marks. Yeah. And so for me, I think I'm going to hand out my, half mark to uh, Paul Roma because Paul Roma was a guy that 
I didn't remember the name. I kind of just remember him as a bland white guy who was in some spots at that point. But I, I didn't remember a whole lot about his ring work. But I was, I think, very, very pleasantly surprised by him. And I thought he did really well. I thought he, I, I was, I was very surprised about how athletic he was. I just didn't really remember a whole lot about him as a wrestler and was very, very pleasantly surprised. I thought he looked really good. Um, I'm going to give my one mark to Dusty just because yeah, he was only in the ring for about a minute. But I mean, the guy packed in so much, as, as we already said, packed in so much electricity into that one minute and just kind of every spot he was in on the show, his promos, everything. The guy was the star. And for me, my two marks, I got to give it to Vader. I am just a huge, just unabashed, giant Vader fan. I think he is one of, if not the best big man of all time. They just do not make human beings like Vader. He is just completely unique in every way, and he is awesome. I love Vader, and I think he was absolutely great in this match tonight against Sting. Um, so that's it for me. Paul Roma, Dusty, and Vader. So that will leave us with our last order of business. We're going to spin the wheel and find out what show we're going to cover next week on Two and a Half Marks. As I pull it up, you guys want to give your predictions for this one. Jake, you want to go first? Yeah, um, I'm hoping to see something from like like when I was a, like into wrestling the first time. So like something like 2010-11. Um, I, I think that's that way I can remember some guys from back when I really watched it. I'm kind of hoping for that mid 2000s era, um, which is when I start first started watching. Um, the first piece of wrestling uh, that I've ever watched was WrestleMania 24 with the uh, Kurt Angle, Randy Orton, Rey Mysterio triple threat match. So I think it'd be really cool to go back and revisit that one because I have so many fond memories of that WrestleMania. Okay, well I have spun the wheel. And I can confirm that Jake is going to be very happy with this one. We have landed on WWE Hell in a Cell 2012. Let's go. Oh, wow. What's the main, main event, event of that? Main event, Hell in a Cell WWE Championship match between CM Punk and Ryback. Wow. With, special, with special guest referee, this is a guy, Brad Maddox. Wow. Man. Okay. Who could referee Brad Maddox? <laughs> It's this is Listen, be... Ryback. Ryback was so over. Like he he got to the to the apex, and then like they just never pulled the trigger on him. No, like like hearing the crowd chant "Feed me more." Like, I, the, you know, he he was over. He was over. Ryback's the perfect guy to show my gap in WWE, uh, because before before I left, I never saw any Ryback. Um, I kind of saw his like very beginning debut where he's just getting fed jobbers. Uh, and then by the time I come back, he's already had his full career. He's already had the insane. Oh, I've gone back and watched a few pay-per-views from that time. He was insanely over just nuts over. Yeah. And I had never experienced it once live. So this is going to be fun for me to go back and watch. I'm also, I love CM Punk. I remember watching his first match on ECW against, uh, was it just incredible? Is that his name? <laughs> former, ECW, former ECW world champion, just incredible. So I remember watching that match and seeing Punk come out. They treated him like a huge deal. Um, and I think that kind of helps him throughout his entire career because people knew that he was going to be great. And I remember watching that match. I'm just like, I am sold on CM Punk. I'm so happy to see how his career went and just how divisive he was throughout his entire career. I thought, so getting a Punk match, I'm very excited for that on this podcast. 
So that's what you have to look forward to next week on Two and a Half Marks, WWE Hell in a Cell 2012. Looking forward to uh, reliving that pay-per-view and remembering some guys. So until then, this has been David Statman with Angelo Inglisa and Jake Long. Thanks, everybody, for listening.